But Siata Dishmania, let's continue on understanding what we do and what we're saying and why we're saying what we're saying when we dive into the King of Kings. We're talking here now and learning from Rikshley Alev, the women, women about women and Tefila by Rabbi Menachem Nisel. So now let's continue and uh, we open up here about women tefillah and redemption. So we explained in the previous lesson that a woman's deepest yearning is to build through her own physical self. And furthermore, the need for children is at the root of her will to build. And this innate longing has propelled Klal Israel through difficult oppressions and brought about redemption. During the slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians devised a scheme to prevent the, continua, the, the continuity of the Jewish people. They forced men to endure long hours of backbreaking work and then sleep in the fields under the pretense that this was being done to increase their hours of slave labor. Slave labor. They succeeded in wearing down the spirits of the Jewish men. Yet the women were undaunted, as Mam Loez relates. The women, however, were righteous and pious. They took care of their husbands and cooked them warm food. When they brought it to them, they consoled their husbands with gentle words. They said to them, do not be pained. We will not be slaves our whole lives to this lowly people. Hashem has given us a promise that he will have mercy on us. So the Midrash Tahuma tells more. So the daughters of Israel had in their possession mirrors before they adorned themselves. And even these they did not refrain from bringing as a contribution to the Mishkan. But Moshe was disgusted with them because they were made for the Yetzirah. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, accept them for these are more beloved to me than anything else. And through these mirrors, the Jewish women have set up the large population in Egypt. And when their husbands were fatigued from the rigorous labor, they would go and bring them food and drink and feed them. And they would take the mirrors and each one would look at herself through to, uh, to, together with her husband in the mirror and would entice them with words saying, I am more beautiful than you. And in this way, they would bring their husbands to desire. And they cohabited with them and conceived and gave birth there. As the verse says, under the apple tree, I aroused you. So when the future of Klal Israel seems hopeless, the Jewish women seized the moment. Under insufferable conditions, they brought into this world a generation of redemption. Rabbi Akiva stated, and the merit of the righteous woman of that generation, the Jewish people were redeemed. So let's take this idea one step further. Ramban, the Ramban teaches us that the culmination of the redemption was the building of the Mishkan, a tabernacle that embodied the union of Hashem and Klal Israel. Hazal explained that our redemption from Egypt created a cherished relationship with our Redeemer. On a mystical level, the exodus from Egypt was our courtship, the revelation at Har Sinai, our wedding, and the building of the Mishkan, our home. It's astonishing to reflect that the home where the divine presence unified with Claudia Israel originated from women's yearning and sacrifice to perpetuate the Jewish home. Their uncompromising desire for children to be builders in the deepest sense of the word resulted in the building of the edifice that housed the Holy of Holies. And a house must be built on solid foundation. The Mishkan, too, was built on a solid foundation. The walls of the Mishkan were made out of kerosene, enormous boards of the strongest cedar wood. They were held together by the miraculous Brihatichon, a central beam of wood that passed through a hole in the kerosene and curled through the corner kerosene to brace and hold together the boards, forming a sturdy and robust hole. Where did this extraordinary piece of wood, the source of the Mishkan strength and unity, come from? Rav Yonasen Ben Uziel reveals that it had a remarkable origin. The Briach Hatichon came from the house that Abraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu built to house their guests. Angels cut down the wood and brought it from Eretz Israel to the wilderness. The foundations of the first Jewish home, 
built on the solid tenet of Hesed became the foundation of the ultimate base, Ne'eman. In other words, it is incorrect to merely say that the prototype of the Jewish home is the Mishkan. Rather, on a deeper level, the prototype of the Mishkan is the Jewish home of Abraham and Sarah. Women are the eternal guardians of the Jewish home. At the crucial moment in Egypt, the woman stepped forward and took the necessary steps to ensure the continuity of Klal Israel, which in turn precipitated the Geula. So what makes this even more remarkable is that it was achieved without compromising the Jewish woman's defining characteristics of modesty. They achieved maximum effect with minimal profile. Sarah Imenu's own home and the whole Jewish nation were built against the settling, set, the, the setting highlighted by the angels' exchange with Abraham Avinu. Ayes Sarah Ishtecha, Bahoel. Where is Sarah, your wife? And he replied, She's in the tent. The Talmud comments, This is to teach us that she was modest. So in every generation, Jewish women have instinctively known what to do to protect their families. In our generation, when the threat to the Jewish home is as strong as ever, women must once again be warriors in protecting their homes. They must play their critical role to bring the final geulah from this bleak and sorrowful galut. They must once again tell their husbands, do not be pained. We do not have to be enslaved to a modern day Egyptian culture. Hashem has given us a promise that he will have mercy on us. So it came to pass in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned from the slavery and they cried and their prayers rose up to God from the slavery. God heard their moaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov. So in the beginning of these lessons, we explain why the first collective expression of Claudia Israel as a nation was the tormented prayers under the yoke of Egyptian bondage. The Ramban adds that when 210 years of slavery had passed and the time of redemption had arrived, Claudia Israel was no longer worthy of redemption. Nevertheless, because of their excessive crying, Hashem accepted their prayers and took them out of Egypt. The power of prayer superseded their lowly status and precipitated the process of Geula. So Hashem tells us through the merit, through the prophet Micha, like the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show you wonders. Micha teaches us that the redemption from Egypt is a prototype for the final redemption. Hashem will repeat in spectacular detail the essence of all the miracles and wonders that we experienced in Egypt. We in turn must follow the footsteps of our ancestors and do what is necessary to bring about that redemption. So after 2,000 years of bitter galut, people ask in his aspiration, what can we really do to hasten the geula? The only answer is that we have to follow the formula laid out in Egypt. Two crucial ingredients have been spelled out in these pages. First, women must extend themselves and go the extra mile to protect their children from the Egyptian cultures of their generation and build a Jewish home that is a continuation of the Mishkan built upon the foundations of the Yavos. And second, we all have to become daveners. The Chofetz Haim writes, Tefillah and crying out to Hashem is another great fundamental that will bring the Geulah, just like it did for our ancestors in Egypt. HaKadosh Baruch Hu desires that we pour out our Tefillah to Him and through this He will bring the Geulah. We need to constantly cry out to Him until He sends His final salvation. Tefillah is so powerful that it can bring redemption without any other merit. Even our enemies understand the unique potency of Jewish prayer. On the eve of the Six-Day War, Radio Cairo um, arrogantly announced, this time the Tehillim of Meir Sharim are not going to help you. They were wrong. 
A large proportion of our daily Shemona Esrei involves requests for the redemption process. We must rediscover these tefilot and feel the urgency to cry for Geula. It's hard for us to find a single tear that comes from the heart. Is it so hard? So once again, women, the natural daveners, need to feel a special responsibility to express their yearning for Geula through prayer. In the winter of 2001, there was a drought in Eretz Israel. A group of women in Jerusalem, in a Jerusalem neighborhood, convened every Friday night to say Tehillim for rain. And eventually, Hashem had mercy and the rains came down. So in whose merit did the rain fall? It's not for us to say, but maybe, just maybe, it was the prayers of a few special women who understood the power of tefillah and took some real practical steps to bring down the Geshem. And maybe it will be the prayer of one special person with her sincere cry of Ki li shuasecha, ki kivinu kol hayom. For your salvation, we constantly learn that will bring the final geula. And maybe, just maybe, that person will be you. So in recent years, Arabs have murdered several hundred Jews in dozens of terroristic accidents and incidents in Eretz Israel. Look what's happening now. Anyone who follows the current events and monitors the tortured negotiations between Israel and its Arab counterparts understands that we're living through an Ezzara Le'Yaakov, a difficult time for the Jewish people. Hazal had a formula for dealing with Ezzara. Ramban, citing the Midrash, relates how before Rabbi Yanai would meet the Edomite kings to discuss communal matters, he would study Parasha Ve'ishlak, which discusses how Yaakov Avinu prepared to meet Esav Harasha because the Ramban explains that future generations should observe and follow what he did. So similarly, if we want to succeed against our enemies, we need to follow the methods of our wise elders and abos as expounded by Hazal. We had a long and bitter experience in dealing with the children of Esau. The pages of Parashah by, by Yishlak are soaked with two millennia of tears. Hazal, however, warns us that before the coming of Mashiach, Klal Israel will have to contend with the children of another enemy of our Avos, the an aggressive, resurgent, and reinvigorated Ishmael. So indeed, the Torah's description of Ishmael as a wild man, his hands against everyone, and everyone's hands against him, seems particularly apt for our generation. The world watches helplessly as the hands of Ishmael stretch out to the four corners of the world. His descendants' hands control and intimidate with their with their petrol dollars, strike out with terror from New York to Buenos Aires to Paris, and most of all, stretch out in Eretz Israel. The solution once again is to follow the advice of Azal. Just as we study how Yaakov dealt with Esau, we must study how Yitzhak dealt with Ishmael, the forefather of the Arab nations. Yitzhak steps onto the center stage of history, independent of his father, Abraham, at the end of Parashah Sarah. And what's the first action taken by Yitzhak that's recorded in the Torah? It says, Now Yitzhak came from having gone to Be'ir, Lachai, Ro'ai, for he dwelt in the Negev. Yitzhak went out to pray in the field towards evening, and he raised his eyes, and behold, camels were coming. So not surprisingly, Yitzhak is involved in tefillah. Yitzhak, through the Akedas Yitzhak and Har HaMoraya, laid the foundation stone of the Bektamidash, the source of all tefillah and the place towards which we direct all our prayers. He remains the paradigm of all Mishri Nefesh, self-sacrifice, and the pillar of Avodah, dedication of the heart for eternity. His children will forever implore Hashem on the day of judgment with the words, and may you remember the Akedak of Yitzhak today for the sake of his offspring. And now Yitzhak goes out and prays in the field. And the field is identified by Hazal as Har Hamariah, the former site of the Akedah and future site of the Bet Hamidash. 
So furthermore, Hazar revealed that this was no ordinary prayer. Yitzhak was instituting the tefillah of Minha for future generations. He prayed towards evening, a time when man, after a full day of mundane activity, often feels distant from his spiritual ideals. Yitzhak instituted a tefillah that helps us renew our spiritual strength and feel close to Hashem no matter how far we've strayed. Every Mincha garners its strength and potency from Yitzhak Avinu's Mincha. And Yitzhak, however, precedes this momentous tefillah with a seemingly puzzled deed. The preceding verse relates that Yitzhak came to Har Hamariah after having made a detour through Be'ir Lachai so what is the special significance of Be'ir Lachai Ro'ai? And why did Yitzhak feel it was crucial to pass through there before instituting Tefilas Mincha? And let's recall a principle in Tefillah. Tefillah is not dependent on the spiritual greatness of the person praying. Hashem watches over us and is close to us no matter who we are. So similarly, we can turn to Him in prayer and feel His closeness no matter how far we've strayed from Him. So who will be remembered and recorded by the Torah as the one who revealed these truths? One who who would suppose it is Yitzhak Avinu, the pillar of, of Avodah. Wouldn't Yitzhak, who instituted Mincha, understand more than anyone how to feel close to Hashem even towards evening? So didn't Yitzhak dedicate much of his life to digging wells in the wilderness, a metaphor for finding spiritual renewal far from its natural source? But no, it's Hagar, mother of Ishmael, who reveals these fundamental principles. So let's try to understand a little bit more about Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah Imenu evicted her handmaid, Hagar, from Abraham Avinu's household. Hagar wandered in the desert and met an angel who told her to return to her mistress, Sarah. The angel then said, Behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for Hashem has heard your prayer. And he shall be a wild man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And over all his brothers shall he dwell. He, she, and she called the name of Hashem who spoke to her. You are the God of vision. For she said, could I have seen him that watches over me even here? So therefore the well was called Be'ir Lachai Ru'ai, the well of the living one who watches over me. It is between Kadesh and buried. So Hagar gave this well a name that testifies that even in the wilderness, in a place barren of Kedusha, Hashem looks out and cares for the unfortunate. Hagar had seen many angels in the home of Abraham Avinu. She knew that in a holy place, in a holy place, one experiences a special closeness to Hashem. But she never expected to see an angel in the desert. She never expected that Hashem would care for her, a lowly outcast from Abraham Avinu's home. Hagar discovered that Hashem loves his creature, his creations, even when they stray from him she responded to Hashem's love by offering a prayer of gratitude thus teaching humanity that even in a state of wretchedness we could turn to our ever caring God in prayer so the relationship between Ishmael and Tefillah runs very deep it's not just a legacy of Ishmael's mother Hagar and her relation uh, revelation of the Lachai an event that that as Ibn Ezra testifies Bene Ishmael continue to celebrate year after year nor is it the remarkable fact that Ishmael is the only person whose name Ishmael literally means Hashem will shall listen actually refers to tefillah. The strength of Ishmael is his unique koach tefillah, power of prayer as a surprising source. At the end of Parashah Lechlecha, Hashem promises Abraham Avinu that he will have a son Yitzhak who will continue his legacy. Abraham responds with four apocalyptic words: Lu Ishmael lefanecha. Would that Ishmael thrive before you? Ramban explains that Abraham requested may Ishmael's progeny thrive and be sustained throughout the generations. Abraham's words have invested Ishmael with enormous strength, which is expressed through their power of prayer. The Zohar laments, woe to us 
woe to us for that moment. So 3,000 years later, we're, we're still praying the price as we watch in amazement the power of prayer and religious fervor of the Ishmael's descendants. In our tefilos, we long for the opportunity to resume Aliyah la, 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 la Regal, the triannual pilgrimage to the Beit Hamidash. We contemplate with sadness and frustration how hard it is to get our less committed brethren to come to shore. We cringe with discomfort at the inability of Jewish secular leaders to invoke a relevant pasuk or give thanksgiving to Hashem when they make a public speech yet millions of Muslim faithful make the annual pilgrimage to Mecca the, the, the Hajj even through great sacrifice and Eretz Israel Arab workers at building sites without a hint of embarrassment remove their shoes and prostrate themselves towards Mecca their leaders cannot finish a sentence without saying with the help of Allah and we sometimes forget that they too are praying to the one and only but our greatest source of anguish, the deepest pain of cloud Israel is when we contemplate the impure Ishmael treading on the place where the Bektami Dash stood on the site of Akedah's Yitzhak, on the source of all Kedusha and creation. The Al-Qaysa Mosque has been on that site for almost 1300 years, while the glory of the Bektami Dash radiated for only 1830. The renovation of the Dome of the Rock with a coating of pure gold provides a stark contrast to a coastal Maharivi coated in tears. It's important to understand that we're not suggesting that the tefilos of Ishmael are comparable, are comparable to our tefilos, Hasbe Shalom. On the contrary, our approach to tefillah is the exact opposite of their approach. For us, tefillah is an avoda. Avoda shares the same root as Ebed, servant. So just as a servant relies on the kindness of his master and not his own merit when he requests something from him, so too we completely humble ourselves as Avadim when we approach the king of kings. And this idea is reflected in our name Israel, which Hazal interprets to mean Yasher Kel, Hashem is upright. So in Tefillah we declare with the very name that we do not have the right to anything. Hashem is upright and he will always do what is best for us. So let's take this idea one step further. The Tefilos of Klad Israel have their roots in Akedah's Yitzhak. When the ram of Yitzhak was the first sacrifice at the Makom HaMikdash, Yitzhak's willingness to give his life is the source of Klal Israel's potential for Mesidut Nefesh, self-sacrifice. It has been expressed throughout our history in our ability to emulate Yitzhak and give up everything, including our lives, to sanctify Hashem's name. But one can display Mesidut Nefesh without dying. Rav Haim Beloshner explains that there's an element of Mesidut Nefesh every time a Jew turns to Hashem and Tefillah. A Jew must recognize that his life is completely dependent on Hashem's will. When he sincerely asks for his needs, he is Moser Hanafsho, literally handing over to Hashem his soul. His very existence and effect is saying, Hashem is my life, is in your hands. This is the essence of Avodah in Tefillah. Ishmael has no concept of Avodah. It is reflected in his name, Ishmael, which simply implies Hashem shall listen. His idea of tefillah is to give Hashem orders. He's compared to an arrogant child demanding gifts from his father as he deserves them. Even his Meshuru Nefesh is ultimately not to sanctify Hashem's name, but to receive his son of heavenly reward. His tefillos are not the type of tefillos that Hashem yearns for. Nevertheless, they retain the power of tefillah. So woe to us, woe to us for that moment when Abraham Avinu said, Lo Yishmael lefanecha. Is there anything that we can do to mitigate or counteract the fever of the tefilos of Ishmael? So Hazal revealed to us a crucial point about the koach ha tefila of Ishmael. It thrives only when the tefilos of Klal Israel are weak. 
and our case of mass can only exist when the Bet Hamidash is absent. Ishmael fills a void created by the emptiness of our tefillos. Arizal points out that the gematria of Agar 218 is identical to that of Yitzhak. Hagar wants to be Yitzhak, the heroine of Be'er Lachai Ru'ai, wants to create her own pillar of Avodah. She wants, to, the, she wants the power of Tefillah to belong to her and her children, but she can only step into Yitzhak's shoes if Yitzhak lets her. So we can now answer our question regarding Yitzhak's detour to Be'er Lachai Ru'ai on his way to Harmariah. Ramban explains that Yitzhak regularly used Be'er Lachai Ru'ai as a makom kavua, a permanent place for Tefillah, for, for tefillah since this was where the angel had prepared, infusing the place with Kedusha. The angel's message was that Hashem is close to you even when you are far from him. And this place would naturally complement Yitzhak's own avoda of finding spiritual renewal in places and times remote from spirituality. Appropriately, Yitzhak who digs wells in the wilderness dives at a well in the wilderness. But Yitzhak had a further motive in making this place into Makom Kabua. Hagar herself had made Be'ir Lachai Roi into a place suitable for tefillah. She taught her son, who in turn taught his descendants, the value of the place. Yitzhak cannot allow Ishmael to dominate such a powerful place for prayer. He cannot allow the children of the wild man to enjoy any advantage over his children in Koach HaTefillah. So Yitzhak then goes one stage further. When he's ready to travel to Harmariah to institute Tefillah's Mincha, he makes a detour to Be'er Lachai Ru'ai. Once again, he inspires himself with the powerful message of the place. But this time, he takes his inspiration and channels it into Tefillah's Mincha at the site of the Akedah. Yitzhak internalizes the message of the angel that Hashem will care for man no matter how far he has strayed and supplements his own nature of seeking Hashem unconditionally even if it involves Mesirut Nefesh. Yitzhak transforms Ishmael, the tefillah of Ishmael, into Yasher Kel. Hashem is upright, the name of Israel. Be'ir Lechai Ro'ai now belongs to Klal Israel. So we want to know what we can do to alleviate the suffering of Klal Israel at the hands of Bnei Ishmael. The physical battles between Klal Israel and her enemies mask a deeper, more fundamental spiritual battle. Bnei Ishmael have found enormous strength through their power of tefillah. And this strength can only flourish where Klal Israel leaves a void. They can only receive parts of Eretz Israel if Klal Israel is not deserving of them. In these difficult times, our Gedolim have urged us to strengthen ourselves in all areas of Avodah Hashem. If we do so in the specific area of tefillah, we're actively diminishing the power of Ishmael. We can help prevent Arab terror in a real way by denying Ishmael the spiritual underpinning that gives him strength. We have to wage war with preemptive strikes with tefillot that find their source in the we children must learn from our father's actions. We must follow in the footsteps of Yitzhak Avinu and once again reclaim We explained that the power of Tefillah is present in Ishmael's name, but there's an alternative meaning to the name Ishmael. Hazal said that the name Ishmael refers to the Tefillot of Klal Israel, and we can be consoled by these prophetic words of comfort that in Ishmael's very name is the source of our ultimate deliverance from his hands. Says, in the future, Hashem will listen, Yishma Kel, to the groaning prayers of the people, Klal Israel, suffering from what the Bene Ishmael will do to them in the land of Israel at the end of days. And therefore, he is named Ishmael, as the verse says, Hashem will listen and answer their prayers. 
So as we conclude these lessons on the Hashkafa of Tefillah, let's summarize what we've learned by taking a page out of the history of Esther HaMalka. So in order to appreciate the events described in Megillah Esther, it's crucial to understand that every reference to the Melech, the king, that is King Asheverosh, conceals a reference to the king of kings, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The story of Purim can thus be read on two levels. When, when, when read literally, King Hasheverosh is the central controlling player. When read at a deeper level, the king of kings is manipulating the people involved like puppets on a string. So consider, for example, the episode where Esther entered the palace of Hasheverosh for the weighty purpose of saving Klal Israel. She had no invitation to the palace and was therefore risking her life. In her own words, Uvchen avo el amelek asher lo hadas vekasher avadeti avadeti. And so I will come to the king which is against the law and if I perish, I will perish. At a deeper level, Esther sent to the palace of the king and kings to save Klal Israel with the power of tefillah. But she had no invitation. An invitation implies that we are wanted. In other words, as a representative of Klal Israel, Esther was not worthy of being saved. Every Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we enter the palace of the king of kings and ask to be inscribed in the book of life. As we begin our prayers in the Shmona Esrei of Yamim Noraim, our opening word is Uvehin. And so Abu Draham teaches us that the word Uvehin Hen is inserted in to invoke the Uvechen said by Esther before she entered the palace. On the high holidays when the question, who will live and who will die, hoovers over us, we will become Esther. We are all undeserving, yet we have no choice but to follow in Esther's footsteps and ask for salvation. So let's learn from Esther as we take a more look, a more look at the dramatic moments when Esther entered the king's palace. Esther fully understood the consequence of entering the, the palace without an invitation. It was a guaranteed death sentence. For the king to revoke a law that he himself had formulated was inconceivable. Why would he make a mockery of himself in front of his whole royal court? So yet there was a chance that Hashem would perform a miracle like he did for Daniel when he was cast into the lion's den or for Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah when they were thrown into the fiery, the, the fiery furnace. But this thought gave her little comfort. Even if she miraculously survived entering the palace, even if she escaped Haman's decree, she would still be condemned to misery. As an orphan, the only person Esther had in her life was Mordechai, the great Sadiq of the generation, her husband and mentor. By willfully submitting herself to the king, she would be halakhically forbidden to Mordechai. She would then have to live the rest of her days with the wicked king, Ashverosh. And furthermore, she had spent her whole life perfecting the Mida of modesty. Her name, Esther, means hidden, sneals, was her very essence. It was through this midah that she had attained the status of one of Claudia Israel's seven women prophetesses. And now she will be perpetually condemned to live with a man who was notorious for perversion and obsessed with immodesty. Her life was in tatters. But there was one thing that, were, that, that, that one could not take away from her. Even as she was about to enter the valley of death, she knew that Hashem would always be with her. Hashem would be with her, rock to lean on. Hashem girded herself with the, her power of prophecy, the Shekhinah, the divine presence would accompany her to Ashivero's court. The extreme closeness to Hashem that only prophecy can bring would carry her through or her ordeal. She was on her third day of fasting. She removed her sackcloth and ashes and donned royal clothing. Perhaps her beautiful attire will help her Gaunt features of after not having eaten for so long. She sets out towards the royal palace, comforted that the Shekinah was escorting her with constant prayer on her lips. As she approached the courtyard of the palace, she focused all her energies on her tefilot, her faith and the fate of every man, woman, and child in Israel, and the faith of all Jewish history was on her shoulders. 
Her big moment had arrived. She entered the palace disaster struck. For Esther, no greater catastrophe could possibly have occurred. The Shekinah, unsuited to remain inside an impure palace filled with idols, left her. And suddenly she felt alone. And there she was, a frail and fragile woman who had never enjoyed parents or children with no friends to support her, utterly alone in the most hostile environment on earth at the most critical moment in her life. And in her moment of greatness need, of greatest need, Hashem had abandoned her. Keli, keli, lema, azav, tani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She cried and she davened and she cried and she davened until her whole body became an ocean of tefillah and tears. What was she to do now? Her voice was so choked with emotion to speak, her eyes too filled with tears to see, and her body too weak from fasting to move. But she had no choice. She had to move forward towards the king. And slowly she inched her way through the seven empty chambers that led to the hall of the king. And although she felt her strength wanting, she channeled every ounce of remaining energy into her tefillah. She davened like she never had davened before. She begged Hashem to see the afflictions of her soul and the suffering of her people. She invoked every zechut that she had. She implored Hashem to remember the merit of her family, her ancestors, the abos, all the Sadiqim of all the generations and all of Akhlad Israel. Little by little, step by step, she made her way to the hall of the king. She entered the hall. She looked up and found herself standing directly opposite the king. Esther knew that she cut a pathetic figure at that moment. All her beauty had vanished with the trauma of her, 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 of her ordeal. She was a wretched Jewish girl who had just defied the most powerful person in the world. The king was sitting on his throne of judgment. The magnificent hall was filled with court, with courtiers and advisors, aristocrats and nobles, as well as soldiers and the king's executioners. Haman and his henchmen were there too. Everyone gasped with shock at the audacity of Esther's entry. How dare she enter the palace uninvited? Everyone knew the royal decree. Esther now had to be put to death. The hall fell silent as everyone waited for the king's reaction. The king was fuming with rage. He gnashed his teeth, his eyes burning like fiery torches. His wrath was terrifying. There was no question what his intentions were. Haman savored the moment. He was waiting for a nod from the king so he could be, unleash his henchmen who were straining to slay Esther. Esther lowered her eyes. She was inwardly shaking and her heart was racing. She had to do something. She wanted to move to speak to just raise her head, but she couldn't. She could not. She completely froze. After all her fasting, prayers, and tears, her strength had finally left her. It was all over. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. Her head lifted up, but without any effort on Esther's part. Her face was suddenly transformed into its full radiance and beauty. Her eyes, the eyes of the king, met. He was overwhelmed by Esther's charm and grace. He looked at his hand and was surprised to find that he was holding his golden scepter, something he had never before held while seated on the throne of judgment. Then, to the absolute amazement of everyone present, the scepter miraculously started growing and reaching towards Esther. The scepter stretched to the other side of the hall, touched Esther, and then stopped. The king arose from his throne of judgment, his face filled with loving kindness. He ran towards Esther and supported her frail body. My dear Queen Esther, why did you go to all this trouble and endanger your life? But have no fear, my laws apply to my people, not to my beloved queen. What is your request? 
I am prepared to grant you even half of my kingdom. And the king of kings arose from his throne of judgment and he was filled with the attribute of mercy as if he were saying, this is the moment of extreme closeness that I have been waiting for. Know that just as you struggle towards me at your moments of greatest darkness, I was with you all the time, but I remain hidden because I wanted your efforts to be yours. My precious cloud Israel, arise from your praying and fasting, your sackcloth and ashes, wipe away your tears. The moment of Geula has arrived. Baruch Adonai Leolam, Amen ve Amen.